Hey there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, we hope you enjoy the show. Wait, my VNC has died. Oh, there we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. <laughs> and I'm Dan. And today on Wandering DMs, what a great show we have lined up for you today. We're talking about D&D on Mars. And if you like Burroughs' Martian adventures where John Carter is groping through black pits, then you may like a little game called D&D. And so we're here today to talk about the surprisingly deep connections that those properties have. All that and more today on Wandering DMs. Before we get into that, I will remind everyone, as always, that after our show, we do have an after-party chat. Uh, that is a live video chat with the two of us and uh, all of our patrons on our private Discord server. You can join in that by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. We're going to look forward to that later today. And of course, so the Mars that we're talking about here today that is really, you know, intimately connected to original D&D in ways that a lot of people nowadays don't know is, of course... Uh, the Barsoom Stories of John Carter by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And, and of course, Burroughs is famous for uh, creating John Carter and creating Tarzan. And I kind of pushed for this. I kind of wanted this. Uh, neither Paul nor I are the biggest Burroughs experts um, on this planet. Um, and so kind of my motivation for wanting to talk about this is we're, we're all dealing with this really hot summer. Uh, it's it's a little more than 10 years since the John Carter movie was made by Disney. Uh, there's some online discourse that I see nowadays, maybe regaging the quality of that movie. Anytime, anytime should, should we build a city on Mars uh, question comes up. Frequently, someone brings up John Carter. Um, and you know what? It's Burroughs' birthday next week. So I thought this would be a good time to touch back on uh, the, the John Carter stories by, by Burroughs, of course. Um, Paul, did you see that? Did you see that movie? I watched the movie. I did. Um, not right when it came out, but I did eventually see it. I thought it was fun. It's a good movie. Okay. I, again, okay. I've I've not read the books. Uh, I, I I have no connection to the content, uh, really. So, as as far as just any other uh, sci-fi fantasy movie goes, it was decent. I thought. Did you see it? You saw it at home on a on a television screen. Yeah. Give me a give me a grade 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 it A through F. Oh, it's been a little while since I watched it. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's um, B. Maybe fair, yeah. fair. Yeah. I I think I think I'll, whenever I see it, uh, I mean maybe this is true about any fan base. Anytime I see you know comments about it online nowadays, generally people say that it got a bad rap. It didn't get. Uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, my partner Isabel liked it a lot when we saw it in the theater at the time. Um, I thought it was a top tier, you know, fantasy movie by my standards. And I think a lot of the people that comment on it nowadays is is Disney didn't know how to market it fundamentally. Mm. Um, and I I liked it a lot. I liked the structure of the movie a lot. There's a framing device that actually brings in the author Burroughs as a character that I liked a lot. 
It's, that's the kind of thing that would really float my boat. Um, mm-hmm. I liked that the movie was long, actually. It kind of gave a really epic feel to, to you know, for me. And, um, you know, it's interesting because some people say that around this, so, you know, the John Carter movie was being produced like around 09, released in 2012, um, which was itself the 100th anniversary of Burroughs writing those stories, in fact. Um, and it's at the same time, Disney was also going through the motions of purchasing Marvel and Star Wars. Mm. And some thinkers point to that moment and saying, because the John Carter movie didn't, didn't do as well as Disney wanted, they gave up on promoting lesser properties. And after that point, they really basically just committed to promoting stuff that people already knew, like Star Wars and Marvel. And that's where we are today in the movie business. Interesting. Interesting. I, I mean, how do you know anything about how that movie got made at that time? It seems like a pretty arbitrary point in the history of that property to decide, let's make a movie out of this. I my my and people uh, if our viewers know better than than I do, feel free to put it in the chat. I, I, I think it's one of those properties where people have been trying to make movies for a long time. Uh, you know, obviously, there's many, many Tarzan movies over the years, going back mm-hmm. 100 years. So it's kind of an obvious thing to point to. Lord of the Rings was was super successful in the early aughts. So people were looking around for what's the next big fantasy thing that's going to take off and we can make a trilogy series, which was the original plan. And 2012 being the 100th anniversary of the story seemed like a good target point to release okay. a movie and they got they got the, the production going to, to make that happen. They actually did did succeed at that. Now you I mean this is fascinating to me just from from like an IP standpoint because you you pointed out to me that there was a um a work by Gygax, right, about uh based on this on this IP that got pulled very quickly due to copyright issues. That's totally where um, I'm going with this. Let me let me table okay. that just for for a little bit because okay. I want to spend. I'm pro- once I get talking about that, you're not going to be able to stop me. So <laughs> just you know, as non-experts, frankly, um, to the Barsoom works, it's interesting for me to remind myself how incredibly influential they were to later fantasy and sci-fi. And so you have this trope of science fiction foreigner comes to a desert planet and has to have mm-hmm. adventures in the face of you know social conflict and you know that kind of very directly has a stream right from that directly to dune directly to the original star wars right uh john cameron says that it was an, a huge influence on avatar i mean more or less cameron took the john carter stories and just reversed the terrain instead of a dry desert planet he made it a a watery planet (laughs) and other than that though the overall plot of the original avatar is very similar to the john carter plot and cameron Hmm. has explicitly said that's the case um and of course if, if anybody doesn't know it um superman was a flip of john carter john carter of course is an earth man that goes to a planet with lower gravity and turns into a super man and later on, somebody said, well, what if we had someone from a higher gravity planet come to Earth? And that was the origin of Superman. So um, really enormously influential touchstone to later, all kinds of later sci-fi and fantasy. Now, here's a, here's a quiz. 
and I didn't know this until the other day, a number of names in Star Wars pretty clearly come from names in the John Carter novels. And so maybe I'm going to ask my viewers, what is, what is the name of the top tribal leaders in Barsoom? What do you, what do you call the top tribal leaders in Barsoom? Anybody know that? I'm going to give that a beat for our viewers. Too. <laughs> any, any guesses? Any outright yeah. total guesses for that, Paul? Uh, nope. No idea. Absolutely no clue. Okay, I'm, I got three questions here, and if somebody asks, answers the first one in the in the in the chat, well, so, so my so my questions are going to be: uh, what what are the top tribal leaders called on Barsoom? Um, what is the name of the large sinister uh, spider monsters? And uh, what is the name of the large, multi-legged, uh, bristly fur uh, tufted monster on Barsoom? So the answer. So some of us, some of our viewers know the the first question there. Uh, what are the leaders called? They're called the Jed, or the Jedak, or the Jedwar, depending on the exact hierarchy. But they're fundamentally called the Jed. And um, there you go. Who came up with Kamikaze Mark right came up with that first. Kamikaze Mark there. Yep. Yep. Good job there. And uh, so I think that the, the top level is Jeddak, the second level is Jed, and the third level is Jedwar, I think. So, you know, not exactly the same thing as you see in Star Wars, but it seems like these things were rolling around probably in Lucas's brain, and he took, he took this name, you know, for Jedi for the, for the heroes. And uh, there is this multi-legged uh, beast uh, that's called a Banth on Barsoom. Mm -hmm. and of course, okay. you get the big elephantine creatures called Banth in Star Wars. And then there's also a, uh, a large uh, sinister insect monster that's called the Sith. Yeah, interesting. Right? Okay. So uh, there's only so many four-letter four you know, words in English that you can compose. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's kind of weird that there's a number of words, right, interesting fantasy names that somehow oozed out of out of the John Carter movies, uh, John Carter stories directly into Star Wars. So I, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> now let's talk about D&D. <laughs> Right. Okay. So you pick up, you pick up original D and D, right? And 1974, and you look at the foreword, and the foreword on the first page of text, really, by uh, by Gary Gygax, has a at the end has a paragraph that's kind of a sales pitch of what you're looking forward to when you play D and D, and he names three big three big characters that the reader was presumably familiar with. And the first one is John Carter. Okay. Okay. And in fact, my, my little teaser at the top of the show is directly from here. I don't know if anybody recognized it, but um, he says, uh, Gary writes, these rules are strictly fantasy. You know, even though it says war games on the, on the front, um, mm -hmm. these rules are strictly fantasy. Those war gamers who lack imagination, those who don't care for Burroughs Martian adventures where John Carter is groping through black pits, dot, 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 are not, will not be likely to find Dungeons and Dragons to their taste. Hmm. So you better okay. like John Carter, otherwise you're not gonna like D&D, &D, is what I'm reading here. <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating. Right? 
It's amazing. And then the um, other two coming up after that are Conan yeah. and Fafford and the Grey Monster. And distinctly, distinctly no Tolkien. <laughs> that that's that, well, that's correct. I uh, you know I am looking at a third printing, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't. I'm pretty sure that wasn't in there to begin with. Yep. So that leads, Paul, to your your excellent question about things that got pulled because there's a lot of mind share right about the little bit of conflict between the Tolkien estate and original mm -hmm. D and D. And there was some communication. There was a little bit of disagreement. And ultimately, on later publications of original D and D, where you had explicit references to Lord of the Rings like hobbits and Ents and the Baylor and uh, the Nazgul and uh, Gandalf. Uh, th those things were removed from later printings and hobbits were called halflings and Ents were called tree Ents and so on and so forth. So just a couple words, frankly, a couple words got yeah. changed. But right. you're right that th at the same year, Almost simultaneously, that original D and D was published. Gygax also published another little brown book called Warriors of Mars. Maybe we can pull that that image, that cover up. Now that we're talking about that. Uh, sure, sure. I got to hang on. There. Yep. Looks very so, very similar trade dress to right? all of the uh, original brown books. Yep. Right. Exactly. Basically, same time. Both published in 1974. Um, and so the, the product here is called Warriors of Mars, the Warfare of Barsoomin Miniature. Uh, again, you have this war game instinct. You don't have the, the term role-playing game available yet. So it says rules for individual and large-scale land and aerial conflict. Conflict. The credits here are Gygax and, uh, and Brian Bloom here, um, one of the Bloom brothers there. and Not Dave Arneson, I'll point out. And um, this product when it was put on the market briefly got a cease and desist letter from the burroughs estate and this was pulled from publication entirely and never returned it was just gone that is interesting um i find that fascinating for a couple of reasons i mean first of all i you know just and i've only barely skimmed this booklet um you know it's it's i don't think anybody denies it like D D has all these influences, but it's this kind of amalgam, right? It's this, um, you know, stew pot of various influences where Warriors of Mars is clearly very much tied to one specific IP, right? And and, and right. so much so that, like, what jumped out at me as I paged through it is you have pictures of specific characters from the books, right? And it's, yes. And so, and so, like, I could totally see why this product is much more, you know, incendiary than than Dungeons and Dragons, which just has like there's a there's an argument for homage, right, happening in Dungeons and Dragons. Just no, oh, we like these things, we were influenced by these things, but they're not the main thrust of the game. Um and then the other thing that strikes me as odd, and then maybe this is just them I mean, you get a cease and desist letter and maybe that's scary and you just you just react. But um I know that Burroughs wrote these books Kind of across the 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 nineteen thirty one border, right? And it, it, folks, you know, I'm I'm no expert, I'm no lawyer, but my understanding, having done a bunch of research in this for for Conan and uh, the works of, um, wow, uh, 
the name of the author of Conan, which is uh, Howard. Howard, thank you, Robert E. Howard. Jeez. Yeah. Um, right. Is that a lot of those works span that time frame, and that, uh, that there's a specific cutoff in 1931 that stuff published before 1931 is basically all public domain at this point because it was like a can't remember 60 or whatever some some specific time lapse of this many years post, and that stuff post 1931 is more likely to be covered by copyright. And then it gets into a gray area. There's a whole window of time where it's like, well, if they if they wrote, you know, if they re-registered and you have to go and dig up, you know, tables of, of registration dates of when, when did they re-register the trademarks, if they did. Um, it's very, it's a very difficult thing to prove too, because it's basically, you have to prove the negative of, it does not appear in any, <laughs> any records. Um, I think this is a good point. I'm actually glad you're bringing this up because um, I, I, th I agree with that. That's basically my understanding as well. I think all the Barsoom books are on Project Gutenberg for free. So if someone is interested in digging into our pulp uh, uh, traditions, um, I can find uh, A Princess of Mars. I think this is the first one on Project Gutenberg. You can get them all for free. Uh, and, and I think you're right about that, Paul. But, but for what it's worth, like if I look just quickly at uh, the Wikipedia page for, for the Barsoom series, I can see that uh, there are 11 books of which the first seven were published 1931 or earlier. And then um, they weren't, then there's, there's several, there's um, whatever that is, four that, or five that appear, four it looks like that appear either 1936, 1940, 48, 64. So, you know, a lot of these being republished and and then there's a whole there's a whole interesting table here on wikipedia of like it was originally published as a serial then published as a novel and then it's confusing for sure yeah and yep. these 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 yep. you know so it, it could i think best case would turn into a very messy legal battle right so yeah sure you know with a publication like this, up... i don't i don't uh i don't uh I don't wonder about the decision to be like, just pull it. <laughs> just yeah. Pull it. Yeah. The, um, let me, uh, I, I think our, uh, our friend Kamikaze Mark, uh, knows a little something about this. So he just wrote, uh, they're all public domain. All the Barsoom books are public domain is what Kamikaze Mark is saying, but the family also had trademark rights and they were aggressive about that, which mm. makes sense. And, um, and again, as I, as I pointed out in this booklet, you do see, full page illustrations of specific named characters from the book, right? So yes. that's surely yes. not great on a, on a, on yes. a defense yes. of, of the, of the And I think a lot of us are familiar now with the rule being life of the author plus 70 years of the copyright. But I think Paul's comment about the big change around 1930 is prior to 1930, that rule didn't exist, I think was the big change. Um, and then after post-1930, that much, much longer term started to be evolved in U.S. law, I think. Last time I, last time I looked at it, I could be wrong about that. Um, you know, I will say, you know, so I, I will argue, as, I, as I've done in the past, that original D&D does have Tolkien baked into it in a way that it doesn't have anybody else. It's got, you know, multiple monsters by name, multiple properties by name, and... Um, uh, you know, the if I if I look in volume three, which is basically the DM's book, the front, the, the inside cover, we talked about this maybe a, week, a month or two ago. The, initially, this image right here was labeled Nazgul, 
right? And here I have the third printing and the little Nazgul label was removed. Um, mm -hmm. They had an illustration. Actually, this is the monstrous book, isn't it? They had initially on this page here, right after Dragon, um, there was text for the Baylor. And that got that got replaced by this Tom Wom illustration here. And there weren't other there weren't other properties the same way, but nonetheless, you're right, Paul, that a fairly light amount of editing on the names in original DD could be removed. But um with Warriors of Mars, it's right in the title. It says the warfare of Barsoom, and Barsoom is was trademarked. So so that you're right, you just you can't get around how how intensely it's baked all the way through the through everything yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. But I feel it's interesting that people, you know, people have this mind share about the Tolkien issue and the fact that Warriors of Mars got wiped out entirely, not so many people know about, and it kind of got memory hold a little bit. I didn't know about it myself for a long, long time. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting product uh, to me. Oh, uh, no, no, there are still some you know, Barsoom-inspired things that snuck their way into D&D, right? The one that always comes to my mind is the is the White Ape, right? Aren't those right out of Barsoom? Sure. Let's look at, um, let, let's actually look at, I think I got the the Wandering Monster Tables, right? The original D&D Wandering Monster Tables. This actually is the DM's book here. Um, so I have two images there. Yeah, so here is the uh, the first page of the, the Wilderness Wandering Monster tables in original D&D for people that don't have this. And you notice that you have uh, tables for encounters in the mountains and the, the woods and waters and stuff like that. And a table for desert, parentheses Mars. This is, this is the, the first <laughs> page of the, of the wilderness tables here. And so to begin with, the table goes, no bands, dervishes, nomads, lord, wizard, nomads. And then you start having these parenthetical entries that say mm -hmm. red Martians, Tharks, Black Martians, Yellow Martians, more Tharks, and then White Martians, which are all, you know, the, the parentheses is for Barsoom Mars, and those are directly mm -hmm. out of the John Carter stories. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, if that's not enough for you, if you go to the other, the second page, mm -hmm. right, you have a couple of these optional tables that you might want to put in for like particularly magical places. You have uh, optional woods, which are obviously like fairy fairyland type stuff. You have optional swamps, which is all Jurassic dinosaur stuff. And then you have optional arid plains, which is all Barsoom Mars stuff. So you've got apps, bants, thoats, calots, the white apes that Paul just mentioned, more thoats, orlicks, the Sith, sitting there in oh. original D&D. You're welcome. Oh. Tharks, Darcene, more bants and more Tharks. Interesting. And those are all Barsoom stuff. And are those are those monsters detailed in the in the monster section? One hundred percent, none of them. <laughs> yeah, right. Zero, <laughs> not a bit. None That's of so them. So interesting. What what happened? Did they did they pull some stuff out of the monster section and forget to update the table? What's going on here? Okay, well, you know, to, I'll point out the very. It's interesting because the very most of the stuff on this page we're looking at right now are animals, right? There's even this the, the first table I didn't mention is basic animals like spiders, centipedes, lizards, toads, stuff like that. And the there's a line the very bottom of this page, and I am looking at the first printing of original D and D here. It says animals that you're looking at up above. Animals will generally be of the giant variety. Oh, the referee might prefer to have small spiders, which attack the party when they're asleep. My point being. None of these things have stats. 
Gotcha. None of the animals have stats. Not spiders or centipedes or lizards or toads or ants or any of these things have stats. You, you, you're in a zone where it's actually kind of expected that the DM is going to make up stats for all these miscellaneous animal types, hmm. whether you're on Mars or not. Okay. It's a really good question. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. Fascinating. And it's funny because yeah. it sits here and, and even some, with some someone as someone with the original Dean books, you know, I flip over this page sometimes and it kind of just goes past my vision because I'm like, oh, wandering monster tables, da, 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 boring, oh, who uses that anymore? And then it, someday I go, wait a minute. <laughs> why is there, why is there, why is the third table from Mars? <laughs> <laughs> That is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right, Dan. I want to. I want to ask the question um, uh, sideways here. That kind of appeared in chat. Um, have you used this stuff? Have you used the arid Mars tables ever? Have you ever pit any players question. against any white apes or Sith or ants or any of that stuff? This, sir, the answer is yes. I have uh, dug into. Um, uh, I actually have used white apes quite a bit in my last mega dungeon, as a matter of fact. And because, you know, interestingly, let me just confirm this before I before I blurt out something that's not true, because uniquely the white apes are in the dungeon matrix. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I, I believe yep. of that of that of that batch of stuff we were just looking at, the white apes appear on the level four out of six dungeon matrix uniquely. I don't think there's anything else here. Um, and so if I if I want to, you know, and you can basically look at this dungeon matrix as more or less, these are the monsters in uh, the Greyhawk dungeon, mm -hmm. to my understanding. And so if I want to run by the book, original D&D dungeon stuff, I've got to, I've got to embrace the fact that white apes are canonically part of standard D&D dungeons. Um, so I had to think about like what should the stats be, and of course I think when you move on to advanced D D, the trade dress got shaved off and it turned into the carnivorous ape, which is not quite so I interesting because of course white apes have four arms, and the D and D apes here's, don't. Yeah, yeah. So so here's my exposure to this, and and I'm going to pick on the apes in particular here because as a basic player, I had. I knew nothing about John Carter, never read the books, no exposure to any of that IP. First books I'm playing with is the, you know, uh, Moldvay Cook BX set. And I pulled out my basic book and I go to the monster list and the first monster is Acolyte and the second one is Ape, comma, White. And it's the first illustrated one. We get a nice Arrow oh, Otis illustration of an ape. Oh, right. It's just oh, their right. face. You're right. But, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't see for it. Now I'm looking at the, uh, the attacks say two claws. So, so it looks like they've, maybe lost their extra arms in this um they just appear to be apes that happen to be white um in fact it even <laughs> we even get a sentence my god i've never really looked this closely until right now as i'm reading this uh, the very first <laughs> sentence in the description says white apes have lost their color due to many years of living in caves and so in my mind white apes were always just a dnd monster like Rust monsters or, you know, um, carrion crawlers, right? I never, I never really, I never assumed anything other than, oh, it's just a weird extra thing that they came up with specifically for DNT. 
and had no idea that it was it was based on a you know from a, from a from a novels that I had never read. <laughs> That's a great catch. I I wouldn't remember that actually because because I'm actually more used to the AD and D expression where they're carnivorous apes, where they're carnivorous. Ape, comma, carnivorous. I think is the yeah. third thing in the AD and D monster manual. And of course, if and of course we had this branching right from original D and D. You had AD and D, you had basic D and D with you know Moldvay's work. And of course, if the guys were if the guys working on basic were looking at original D and D. You have all these entries in the wandering monster list for white apes. They they are compelled to handle that. So is that do they do they have that in homes? I'm wondering. That is, which, an which is the one that came before that. Yeah. I'm gonna usually yeah. the answer is gonna be yes. If if it was in original D and D and it was in Moldvay, the answer is usually yes to that. But I don't recall it. Mm-hmm. No no apes of any type in homes. Weird. <laughs> Unless it's on the double you. I should check on the double. But I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Right. No apes. Great. Great catch. Hmm. Yeah. Very unusual. I I, I don't know why uh, Mulvey and Cook decided that that needed to be included. But sure enough, there's not not and not just included. Like they got Otis to draw. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right, seems like he's like a pretty important monster, but got an because not you know, most monsters in Mulvey Cook don't get an illustration. You know, they're they're just spot illustrations here and there. I wonder how much it was like. I wonder how much it was that they gave Errol Otis like the list of monsters and like which ones do you want to illustrate? And he's like, oh, Mar, oh Barsoom, white apes, absolutely. Let me do that. Maybe that maybe that was part of it because boy, they were really into the into the Mars stuff at the time. Maybe it's interesting yeah. that the illustration is just such a close-up, though, of the ape's face. Like you would think, the classic thing to show is the forearm. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, maybe they did that ambiguously, intentionally to like, does it have four arms or not? We don't, we don't know. We're not saying mm-hmm. <laughs> what's below the panel. It's up to you, DMs. Uh, I will say, you know, in the third edition book, actually, um, uh, the third edition monster manual, there is a an ape that is white that has four arms, and it's called the Girolin. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's a new right? name for reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's a big, oh. giant ape with four arms, so... Uh, uh, uh. That's um, funny. Of course, if any of us, you know, remember the... the, the um, the promotions to the John Carter movie, the White Apes had a had a really prominent role in the trailer. Like they were the primary Mars monster that they were pitching in this arena battle uh, that John Carter was fighting. So I I remember um, I thought they did a really good job with it. I thought they did a really good a really good job. And I, and like I say, I had a bunch of White Apes running around the appropriate dungeon level of my mega dungeon last time. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Unfortunately, I remember it because. Honestly, I did make a mistake by not making the uh, tunnels big enough for them, and the players called me on it. <laughs> yeah, it was an embarrassing glitch on my part. Like, oh, the very tiny tunnels are hard to get through, and here come the white apes. And like, like, dude, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, you're right. <laughs> They're very flexible. White apes in my c- campaign are canonically very flexible. Hmm. A cat. 
bizarre. I, I'm sure that I used white apes in my games, but just because they appeared on the tables and they had stats, and I probably never gave it a second thought as to why there are white apes in the game again. I think I just chalked it up to, like, you know, like rust monsters. I, I never heard of that monster either. But here it is in D&D, so cool. It's because we're tied at the hip to the Barsoom stories, and the, our pr presumably our primary draw into this new game form is John Carter. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. Fascinating. Let me dig. Let me dig into this Warriors of Mars book, right? So if you if you've had the opportunity to to look at it, I think it's a really interesting product of the same design sensibility within the same weeks or months that D and D was being you know developed. Um, and it's got a so when I when I crack it open, it's got a format you know very same you know printing as as the little brown books for D and D, same typeface same formatting. Uh, the illustrations are by Greg Bell, same person. You know, not the biggest, not the biggest professional of all time. And we know that um, a lot of the, the pieces that Greg did for original D&D are started as tracings from Marvel Comics. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the case for the Warriors of, of Mars art. I, I, I'm guessing probably not, because the um, the anatomy's all off. <laughs> um, but it's you know it feels very familiar. It actually has the same overall format as the Chainmail book. Like it starts off with the exact same. Let's talk about scale. Now let's talk about initiative. Now let's talk about movement uh, in a, in a table. Um, and it has a lot of the same, like I, I, more or less it has like, I'd say like 80% the same rules DNA as Chainmail or Swords and Spells. So in some ways, if it rephrases something or presents something in a slightly different way, I feel it gives additional perspective to what Gary intended for Chainmail and therefore original D&D. &D. Like th there's a place where it says <clears throat> split, like Warriors of Mars, there's a page where it says split, move, and fire. This is not allowed. So it doesn't define what it is, <laughs> right, right? right? In order to know that that means uh, horse archers that can uh, move for half the turn, shoot, and then move again, right? You need to know from another game. And why are you even telling me that there's a feature that you can't do? Just Right. Don't just don't <laughs> don't add that to your rule book. Don't talk if about you're familiar, it. Yeah. Presum yeah. Right. If you're presumably familiar with chain mail, you might have like, oh, can I split, move and fire? And you need to address that because it's kind of sort of the same game. I mean, it's very interesting and it's an interesting, I think, perspective on, you know, who the intended audience was. And and the, this notion that that I think you and I, Dan, have have seen in, in other other places as well, that like you never know what's going to hit. Right. And it wouldn't surprise me to to know that they they decided they're going to make this you know little war game publishing company you know that uh, Gary and Don Kay and the Blooms or whoever else was involved sat down and said we're going to make this little imprint and we're going to publish a bunch of stuff and see what sticks and that probably no one had any clue that Dungeons and Dragons would be the one right they stumbled into right I mean Chainmail was originally just a straight historical miniatures war game simulator and they stumbled into the addition of the uh the fantasy supplement at the end as an appendix which which as he said later on was the tail that wagged the dog that took off that blossomed in D, &D. kind of half accidental yep. not everybody at the time thought it was a good idea 
Fascinating. Let me look at let me look at some of the mechanics. So, uh, I, so the very first page of Warriors of Mars. So this has a red dot on there. I think is interesting because I could almost be tricked into thinking that this is the first page of Chainmail, right? And the first thing that you that you see at the top, and I think that this is to me it's super interesting because it's the to me the most important part of my forays into fantasy game design is that he's talking about scale and he has here is we've got a mass war game here at one to 50 scale one figure is going to represent 50 people and then the next column over is we also support a one-to-one -one scale where one figure represents one single character for close-up action and and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna handle both here on the same page um, mm -hmm. for when you're doing mass action one to 50, the distance scale is one inch is 10 yards and one turn is one minute, exactly the same as chain mail, exactly compatible. But when you're one to one scale, the scale changes. So it's one inch equals six feet and one turn equals 10 seconds. Both the distance and the time are being reduced by approximately a six or approximately a fifth, right? And it's interesting to me because in you know original D and D, he you know they write that the 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 man to man scale, right, the role playing scale, remains at one turn equals one minute, one round equals one minute, and at least outdoors is still one inch equals uh, ten yards. And he continues to defend that for a whole decade, right? He defends that in D and D. He defends that that larger scale that one one round is one minute in AD&D vociferously, hardcore advanced D&D players will still maintain that that's what it's supposed to be. But here he has a completely different instinct at the exact same time that he's writing D&D that if you reduce the scale of the figures, the distance and the time should reduce proportionally. And mm -hmm. my question is why why didn't this bit get into D&D? &D? Because it makes so much more sense. Obviously, that's what D&D &D has said effectively since at least third edition. Moldave says that in his book at the end. That's what I do myself in my, you know, my D&D &D games. And, and here is Gygax's very reasonable instinct for rescaling for the role-playing game and why D&D &D uniquely resisted that is a, is a big mystery for me. That's what it ought to be. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I have no, <laughs> I don't know, Dad. Why? Right? <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Like, like our viewers know, Holmes says, says a round ought to be 10 seconds. Uh, Moldvay says that the distance ought to be five feet per inch. Uh, Boot Hill, a year later, was the same scale, one inch to six feet and one round is a couple seconds, right? It's it's everywhere else that's got Gygax and Bloom's thumbprints all over it. It fundamentally makes sense. And for some reason, they they resisted it in, in the, the advanced D&D line. And it, you know, it does, it, frankly, it doesn't make sense there. So moving on at that, you have the same, right? The, the bottom of this page has two different uh, turn sequence mechanisms, which are fundamentally the same as Chainmail. Chainmail also has these two options for turn sequences, one of which is where you write down your orders in advance of the turn. And the second way 
is a move counter move system where basically one player moves half, the other player does their whole movement and the other player moves half again. Uh, so the exact same two options. And if you were playing original Dean by the book, you wouldn't have any, there's no initiative rules in here. You have to basically pick one of these options back in Chainmail, frankly. And the interesting detail here is that the written orders, the advanced written orders, are only when you're playing the mass war game. It says one to 50 scale only for the advanced orders. If you're playing the man-to-man -man game, the role-playing game, then you definitely should abort the advanced orders, is what they're saying. And you should do this more, this more elegant brief thing at the bottom of the page. So I feel that that's another interesting kind of perspective of the debate about whether you should declare all your actions in advance of the round in D&D or not. Because here he's saying you definitely should step away from that. Works for the mass war game maybe, doesn't work for the, the up-close uh, uh, role-playing game. So let me let me let me step back a little bit here. I'm kind of curious about this this publication at large, right? So this is this is again uh, we're looking at the interior of the Warrior of Warriors of Mars booklet. Uh, my understanding is the print run was small. Uh, it got pulled, right? How quickly do you know how quickly it was pulled? I'm not sure about that. I think it had to be at least within the year, right? It had to. Yeah. I, my my guess it was like a, like a couple months. So my guess is too that this is like now a an insane collector's item to try and find on the market, right? This is highly collectible. Yeah, I'm sure. That is correct. <laughs> uh, that is fascinating. <laughs> uh, are there are there battle reports? Did people play this thing? Was it dead in the water? Like that's what is the lifespan of this question. product? Yeah, I've never seen that. I've I've yeah. never seen that. I mean, frankly, I actually wish that there was more chainmail battle reports, even. Seems a little sketchy yeah, to me. I mean, because we're always we're always crying for you know recordings of Gary or Dave even running D and D, which basically don't exist. I've never heard any battle reports from Warriors of Mars. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, yeah that is interesting. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm super curious how much you know. I would love to hear uh, anyone talk about like what what is the story of this product, right? Did it? You know, was it was it just a, a was it just swept aside? Like, oh well, that was an interesting idea, but but it seems like clearly work went into this thing. But as you're pointing right. out, a lot of the stuff here is very similar to other stuff. So maybe they just repurposed and we're like, okay, well, shove this into D and D or steal this from there or you know whatever, translate and you know it's fine. Um, That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I don't know. Also, yeah. you know, D&D is exploding at this time. And right. so I guess as a business right. choice, you could say it's just not worth fighting about. Let's dig into yeah. D&D. It's, it's blowing up. We need to reprint it and reprint it again and reprint it again faster than we ever expected. That, so that, that might have point. just taken have, their, all their energies. Yeah, yeah. If you have two products out at the same time and one is just blowing up and you can't keep it on the shelves and the other one is getting cease and desist letters, yeah, I, I, know where you spend, I know where I spend my energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you yeah. can't get it on the shelves. <laughs> yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Yeah. I might Definitely. not do that, but it's the right thing to do. If it, Viewers, if you're ever in that position, do yeah. what Paul just said. Don't do what I would do. <laughs> what are you going to do? Double down? No, it must exist. Yeah, I might. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I might. <laughs> I, might have a, I might have a business Hulk out. <laughs> okay so um yeah you know 
a little bit of what we're talking about here. There was there was some chatter in the in the uh, in the the stream chat here about or some. I think I saw go float by somebody requesting about like, did either of us has ever uh, ever transported our players to Mars uh, or to another planet like that, right? And and I'll say frankly, the, the idea never crossed my mind ever, and wouldn't ever in a million years. Um, and my first real exposure to that, honestly, is um, reading the blog of a friend of the show, uh, James Malshevsky, uh, who wrote Grognardia, who I know has written reports, who, who was playing a game where specifically it was an, I think it was an OD&D game, right? Where, where there was a major plot point of there being a portal to Mars. And then that was full of, you know, these, this kind of content, right? Uh, right. And it's such an interesting, an interesting thought. I feel like because in fantasy, what is the difference between this portal leads to a planet that exists in the real world and maybe has some, you know, I don't know, is different from what we we know to be true, right? Like it's Mars is not a, not really habitable, but let's imagine it was, right? And there's creatures living exactly. there. Okay, yep, blah blah blah. Versus, like, just let's just transport to another plane of existence, another dimension, right? And that, and and that, I feel like that second notion just kind of took over, right? It took roots. You see a lot more stuff in D and D about traveling the planes. Let's go to, you know, the elemental plane of fire, or to hell, or to whatever. You know, really, just absolute crazy, fantastical places that exist not in this universe. Versus, like, yeah, let's just go to this other planet that we know exists in our solar system and. And we're reimagining what it looks like. Um, and it's just, I don't know. There's something about that that strikes me as so fascinating that what's the difference? Why do those two things feel different? They kind of do. I don't know why. That's a great yeah. point. And, you know, if I look at the, you know, the root of the of the appendix and pulp literature, and for me, it's Lovecraft is, is ultimately the root. Uh, you know, I, I when I initially read Lovecraft, I'm like, this is, people told me this is horror, but it's not. It's just science fiction. Everything is, you know, in space, it's different planets that you're considering. Things are projecting their mental existence from one planet to another. Um, you know, and it's it's historically it's grappling with astronomical discoveries at the time and the theory of relativity and things like that. Um, and you know, Lovecraft makes it work, or he makes it ambiguous whether they're you know other yeah. dimension you don't need other dimensions the universe is weird enough and you're right that for some reason when you say you know alternate reality or different dimensions somehow you can embrace a higher level of of um the fantastic i guess more quickly um, yeah is, is it because i wonder and and this is i don't have maybe somebody knows this information right but like what i wonder about is how you know what is the evolution of our knowledge of Mars in general, right? Like, at what point was it known? Oh, no, no, no. Mars is totally uninhabitable. There's no way there could be life there, right? Like, at what point did we go, oh, you know what? The atmosphere there wouldn't support us. Um, I don't know at what point we realized that. Um, but certainly these books, you know, these are written, what, in the late 1800s? Is that right? It's like 1890s? Is that... Is that when Burroughs originally the, wrote this stuff? Or maybe ni early 1900s, maybe? Early 1900s. I, I think, I, well, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. So yeah. what kind of scientific knowledge was available then versus what evolved? At what point did, did, did somebody just decide, you know what? I'm going to 
I'm tired of all these people telling me that there's no breathable atmosphere on Mars. I'm just going to hand wave and say, you're going to the ethereal plane. We're done. Yes. <laughs> there's right. there's that i mean obviously even through you know the 20th century there was for for a while right there was still a a, a conspiracy theory about the, the the martian canals right is it well mars isn't habitable now and it's all dried up now but boy there are these weird lines over the surface of mars and we think that they're they're old, dried-up canals from a civilization that used to be there and isn't anymore. Um, and I think even when I was a kid, there were some people that were still hanging on to that idea. Um, uh, so, I mean, maybe there are still now. <laughs> God, maybe if we go to Twitter right now, we'll find some people are still hanging on to that. You know, there, there are some ideas, though, that I have, you know, in the pulp area, you get other worlds, right, that are not really other worlds, right? You get you know, uh, exploration into deep underwater or into the center of the earth or, um, you know, a lost island untouched by time, right? A plateau where there are still dinosaurs, right? You get a lot of that kind of stuff in, in Pulp Fiction. And I have used some of that stuff. My, my D&D world did have a massive plateau up in the mountains that was still inhabited by dinosaurs and giant versions of of normal creatures um and i really enjoyed that frankly and i uh i played with that and i intermixed a lot of uh a lot of fantasy elements in that i i did have a a kind of primitive humanoid that was actually more of a primitive elf than rather than a primitive human that, that lived up there um and uh i believe my players ultimately did go up there and explore for a bit i even had i think the passage of time operated differently up there due to magic right, right. um it was ultimately sort of uh, i envisioned it as sort of the the um origin of the world right that this is the birthplace of the world and so it's uh you know it was uh it was just a strange strange place and and the players enjoyed it and it was it was fun to go to this weird place that was different from the rest of the fantasy world and then fun to to decide no this place is horrible let's escape and you know, uh, you know, of course, Gary has the whole um, um, uh, Alice in Wonderland series, right? That was connected to his Greyhawk uh, Castle, um, mm -hmm. that was you know published later on as two series. And, and I think your instinct is right, you know, because I've got I've got my um, my uh, Monsters and Treasures book here, and whenever we talk about this, I think about going to the the scroll table. That if you get a a cursed scroll, right, you're supposed to roll you're supposed to roll a d8. For what hideous effect happens with the scroll, and the uh, the the seven result is you get teleported a thousand miles away. I actually think that's happened to your party when I was DMing at some yeah. point, Paul. And mm -hmm. um, but the last yep, one, if you roll an eight, is transported to a different planet. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And at least in original D and D, you don't have dimensions. You don't have the whole planar cosmology yet. That comes up in later supplements. And in original D and D, you do have this kind of Burroughs kind of Lovecraft sensibility at the root of the, the most, the craziest thing that can possibly happen is you get transported to another planet. What are you going to do about that? Well, you should, you should, perhaps you should go get our product Warriors of Mars and you should start running a Barsoom adventure. Um, and likewise, you know, the Warriors of Mars book has a reference back to D and D. It actually says, well, if you go underground on Mars, you're going to have these black pits and there's going to be a labyrinth. And you know what you should do? You should get Dungeons and Dragons fantasy war game rules from TSR, which is also available in order to like complete your, your labyrinthine 
explorations. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. At, at what point does this just border onto clever marketing, right? Like, uh, I, I'm immediately reminded of um, the the um, uh, the accessory AC4, the Book of Marvelous Magic. Yep, yep, uh, yep. The only book that I'm aware of that sort of crossed the basic advance line and was usable by either system. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. And the very, very first item, of course, they're alphabetical, but the very first item in the list is the alternate world gate. And then here's just a bunch of random items, a blackjack, a laser pistol, a loot, a, a pocket tool that each one is just connected to another license, right? You find the blackjack and you're transported to the world of top secret. You find the, oh, right. um, <laughs> the laser pistol, you're transported to gamma world, right? <laughs> like, exactly. literally, and then, yeah, the whole description, and then in all caps with the copyright symbol and everything. You yep, find yep, the violin yep, case, you're transported to Gangbusters. Yep. Go get out your copy yep, of Gangbusters. Right. Start running that game now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't have That's great. That's brilliant. That's pretty funny. <laughs> let me, before we run out of time, let me say a couple of things about Wars of Mars, right? So it does have, it, it segues very quickly from this war game bit to, and here's an alternate method if you're running individuals um you know it's interesting what i nowadays call solos they they call personalities right so a, a powerful named figure in warriors of mars a personality figure and you can have a figure in the mass war game that represents a personality with its entourage um you can you can run the one-on-one game with with you know men versus animals or monsters or stuff like that they've got a whole experience system they've got a whole leveling system they have, you know, a sketchy map of Barsoom. They've got wandering monster tables for all the different terrain types, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, pr- folks probably know that original D&D has rather big sections for naval games and aerial combat that they were, you know, super into at the time. And Warriors of Mars does too. There's actually three parts to the Warriors of Mars book. Part one is uh warfare on the land which includes the whole campaign thing part two is aerial combat a fifth of the whole book is devoted to aerial combat with the various ships and flyers and battleships and stuff that fly through the air of barsoom there's a lot there's a lot of granular detail about that and then part three is information on the special personalities Mm -hmm. Right, the, the named people, that, as Paul's pointing out, is probably the, the thing you could not get around with the trademark issues. And then you have the tables at the end, which is just like chainmail is set up and stuff like that. And if I could look at one more page, Paul, um, if you could bring up the, the, the page with the green dot on it. So I just want to say, if you are interested in getting stats for the monsters that are listed in original D&D without stats, you could consider going to this table here which is the overall matrix for combat of all different types of men and all different types of monsters, set up kind of like chain mail, looks a little bit more complicated. But you notice down the, down the left-hand side, they list white ape, apt, banth, all this kind of stuff. And the next number over is wounds to kill, which you, I suppose you could say hits to kill. And basically, you know, for starters, you could use this as D&D hit dice. So white apes here, wounds to kill is six, and I believe that the big apes, when they show up in D&D, I think they have six hit dice, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one, one version of the Mars. So you could go here and you can actually just take the wounds to kill and just start rolling your monster out in terms of hit dice. Uh, you notice that men go up to 13th level at the most, 
right? So the levels of men at the bottom go from one to 13 and only one person gets to be 13th level and that's John Carter. Nobody else is allowed to be 13th level. Everybody else has to be lower level, such as the Jed, right? The Jed are probably gonna be level 10 or 11 or 12 because they're the leaders generally. Um, and, uh, and I will point out that this whole system is based, you know, chain mail is based on 2D6. This whole system is based on 3D6. So all the numbers in the boxes are to attack. You'd roll 3d6 and you have to hit this number to wound or kill an opponent. And you know what? There's no d20. There's no alternative in this book. It's 3d6. But the range of 3d6 is pretty similar to d20. So I suppose if you wanted to, you could go to this table and you just start rolling d20s to see if you hit something. Would be a possible mm -hmm. way you could translate this. So um, I feel that it's, you know, it's not exactly the same rules as Chainmail or D&D, but it's, it's super in the same scope. And I feel it's, it would be very easy to take this and translate this to a D&D game. Hmm. All right. Uh, and presumably there's a way to get this, Dan. It's nope. highly collectible, impossible to find. <laughs> no, you can't get this. No. You can't get it. Okay. Well, no. good luck. Good luck, Barstool fans. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. There's, there's the one downer. If you could get it, you should definitely get it, right? Oh, but uh, yeah, it's not. It's 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 gone. It's it's it can't be it can't be produced, and it's it's not on Drive Through RPG, and it's nowhere. So doesn't exist. We never saw it. Yeah, Dan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> With that, Dan, uh, we are about out of time. Any any final thoughts on the influence of Barsoom on D and D? If if you can get this product, it's a real treasure if you can access it. If you if you find it or have a friend that has has a copy, you should you should take a look at it. It's got a lot of great supporting thoughts. I think on how Gygax expected to run fantasy war games, uh, how that would connect to role play action, connecting the two gives you some great perspectives about what was in his head for chainmail or swords or spells. Or you know, as I as I continue to roll out and play test my own book of war, I'm looking at this very, very closely to get additional texture for what the intention was um, and how these things interact a lot. So, um, and if you if you roll on the scroll table and get transported to another planet, why not, why not use Warriors of Mars? <laughs> it's kind of two sides of the same coin. There's your two options. You're either in D&D &D world or you're in Barsoom. And that was the state of the game in 1974. Awesome. You know, for for me, um, my the the big thing that I keep wondering about, you know, as as someone who's not particularly uh, a John Carter fan, I don't know much about it. So, like integrating that content into my game isn't tickling me from a like, plot or character perspective. But the very notion of reconsidering what it means to go to a different world is very interesting to me. I think D and D, especially modern D and D, has so baked into it the idea of multiple universes of the alternate dimensions alternate planes of existence um it is fascinating to me to think about well what if we just make other worlds that are just physically distant whether that's the center of the earth or a very difficult to reach mountain plateau or another planet um and then i don't know that is fascinating to me and i wonder what um what, what a game is like where you start to play with that and think about well, what are the actual physical connections? How does one physically get from one world to another? Not necessarily with the use of magic. I like this a lot. This is actually my, my instinct for how I kind of want to run a D&D &D universe myself. Hmm. Hmm. Yep, definitely. 
Viewers, if you have thoughts uh, on Barsoom in in D and D and traveling to other worlds, or a hot tip on where the heck to even find this uh, crazy uh, unpublished uh, booklet, uh, leave us a comment here in the YouTube comment section and uh, let us know your thoughts. And maybe we'll integrate that into another show down the road. Keep it lawful, everybody. We don't want to deal with any cease and desist orders. But of course, remember that you can like and follow and subscribe to us. We're on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and GitHub and TikTok currently. And we have the handle wandering DMs on all those sites. So please look for us there. If you prefer to listen to us in audio only podcast format, you can find those podcasts at our website at wanderingdms.com. You can also find us on various podcast carriers, such as Google Spot, Google Podcast, Spotify, uh, iTunes. If you are listening to this show on one of those third-party podcast carriers right now, and they offer the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That helps other users of that site find our show, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, huge thanks to our patrons who support the show here. And if you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs. And you'll see our couple of different tiers. We get a $1 tier that gets you on our Discord server. The conversation continues all through the week all the time. And we also get to hang out with our viewers a little bit more on our live video chat, like Paul talked about at the top of the show. Um, so we'll be there in about 10 minutes and look forward to that. Other stuff happening on the channel, um, you know, speaking of uh, war gaming, classic war gaming, I hope you caught our uh, Book of War show on Thursday with me and Dan Cullinan. And um, I had a fantasy army with wizards and uh, uh, multiple dragons and all kinds of stuff. And Dan showed up with a thousand normal men. <laughs> amazing amazing and i had to i had to loot all of my figures all my miniature figures in order to provide a thousand normal D, &D men storming the beaches against my uh over the uh over the stream against my uh wizards and dragons and heavy cavalry and all kinds of stuff and orcs and goblins um so that was a that was a barn burner I will be back on Thursday for more Pool of Radiance play. I think I'm supposed to be near the end. So if folks can uh, tune in, no spoilers, but give me tactical advice. That's always really appreciated Thursday at 8.30 p.m. Um, so we'll, we'll look for you then. And of course, uh, Paul and I will plan to be back next Sunday. Uh, hope you guys stay cool and safe uh, this upcoming week. We are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.